This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. We'll be joined later by our digital director, Mike Hogan, uh, who uh, swooped in to talk about Casablanca with us, which was our Essentials rewatch this week, and what a gigantic pleasure that was. Also later in the show, we're going to have an interview that I did with Nicole Byer, the host of Netflix's Nailed It, which is Absolutely. My quarantine watch of choice is something that uh, is getting me through the days and um, maybe making me feel better about my quarantine baking. Um, But first, we're going to catch up with, um, you know, what news is out there. There is still some, you know, new film and television on the horizon. Um, And Richard and Joanna are going to be covering one of the most exciting ones for me. Uh, The FX mini or limited series Mrs. America debuts this week. Uh, Joanna, do you want to tell us about this new season of Still Watching? Boy, do I. Uh, So Mrs. America, which drops on uh, the first three episodes will drop on Hulu on um, Wednesday. It's the sort of FX on Hulu platform. Uh, So the first three episodes are dropping there. It is from uh, creator Davi Waller, who worked on Mad Men and Halt and Catch Fire. So she knows her way around, you know, really authentic feeling period pieces. And it covers the decades long fight of, um, you know, the feminist movement to get the ERA ratified and added to the constitution um and it stars an amazing it's just an amazing incredible cast of women rose byrne margo martindale uzo duba sarah paulson etc etc um and then in in sort of like the lead role uh, if there is one of this great ensemble piece is kate blanchett as the villain of the piece phyllis schlafly who was this woman who organized a you know sort of militarized a group of uh, women across the nation to fight uh, the ERA. And she's a fascinating figure. And we are so lucky. You know, Richard and I are going to be talking about the show as as we always do on Still Watching. But we have so many great guests uh, to join us in the discussion. Our first episode, which, which will drop on this Wednesday on the Still Watching feed, uh, we have... Kate Blanchett, we've got Davi Weller, and we've got Uzo Duba, and uh, they talk about the show, have some great insight into sort of what moved them about this piece and how it feels incredibly relevant, uh, which it does. Richard, do you have any, uh, anything you want to add to that sales pitch of mine? Well, I don't think that you gave proper credit to the most important part of this, that, it, that I, a man, am weighing in about <laughs> the history of feminism. I mean, obviously, that's what the listeners are really going to want to hear. Yeah, they've been waiting. Uh, 
saying. Uh, yeah, I kid, of course. I will. Be. I'm, I'm there to listen and learn more. Um, but um, yeah, it's an exciting show. It does not, um, you know, I think sometimes when you're doing, it's not a biopic of one person. It's a, it's a survey of a kind of moment in history. I think that sometimes those things can feel a little bit like, where's the meat? Because you can't really concentrate on any one person for too long because you have to tell this big, expansive story. But I think that this show figures it out. And it's really helped by the fact that all the performances are as good as they are. The period detail is as good as it is. Um, so, yeah, like if, if you're curious about that show, I would say definitely listen to us kind of unpack it more. And then there's the added value of these wonderful interviews, mostly that Joanna's done. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'd, like what else are you doing? Uh, why not you know, <laughs> take a visit back and see what Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and Bella Abzug and, and Shirley Chisholm were up to, uh, you know, God, 50 years ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tracy Ullman, uh, Elizabeth Banks, it's it's just an incredible, incredible collection of talent. And uh, what they've done with this show is each episode is centered on, you know, loosely centered on um, a, a different woman. Uh, so the episode titles are sort of named for the women. And so that gives them like a little bit more of a chance to focus on each, as, as Richard said. And there's just something really... It just feels really juicy and not that like, not a, you know, not a lightweight. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it's just like, I was a little worried. And I said this on our our episode two, Richard, I was a little worried that this would be dry and I did not find it dry at all. And uh, I just, I just found it really compelling and, and fascinating. Um, Katie, I think you've watched a a bit of it. What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I watched, I watched the first two episodes, I guess at this point back in the before times, um, I should really get back into it now that I'm second home. Um, but I was thinking about how it disproves the theory I had kind of early on that we were all going to get used to watching Zoom calls and YouTube videos and not really want um, high quality content anymore. But like the idea of slipping into a show with those amazing costumes and period settings and all these actors in one place, like it is kind of that reminder of what like really good expensive entertainment can be um, when you get all of those things in one place. And the, uh, you know, going back into a history that I feel like I know way too little about, like the the fact that the Equal Rights Amendment like came that close to happening that like that and like what it could have done about it. And it's something that we don't learn about it, I guess, maybe because it didn't work out in the end. So um, it feels like checking off a, a big blank spot in my feminist history. Something that uh, Davi said to me is that, you know, so this this project was originally conceived before um, the 2016 election. She had sort of written some of it. Um, I think she said she wrote the pilot while, while wearing her like white suit that she wore to vote for Hillary Clinton or whatever. And it's all very like uh, upsetting. Um, but uh, she she says she and the producers keep joking sort of in a bleak way about how this is a show where the culture sort of keeps catching up to it relevancy wise like it feels incredibly relevant especially a lot of conversations the Shirley episode which is episode three uh is about you know the the first woman and the first black woman to uh, try to get the bid for the democratic nominee to become president and uh she or or to get um on the ticket I should say and um the uh, question of electability 
is like sort of the main conversation of that episode. And it just feels incredibly, incredibly timely. So, um, but not in a depressing way, because there are enough moments of like triumph and hope that you're not just sort of, it's not a bleak watch. It's not like Handmaid's Tale season two or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's really, I, I really recommend it. So yeah, something we talk about on the first episode is that because this is not about a fixed static moment. It's about the beginning or the kind of continuation of one that sweeps up to today, that there is a kind of a nice sense of galvanization and energy in it, you know, that that speaks very much to the here and now. So um, yeah, don't, it's not some kind of walled off period piece at all. It's, It's very much on the exact, you know, continuum that we are currently on. Yeah, you get to see how much fun Gloria Steinem's life in the uh, in the early seventies as this like young woman about town was. I was uh, I had no idea that she was such a celebrity. Yeah. Oh. And it's and it's I'm great. I'm so glad it exists because the other Gloria Steinem thing that is going to come out at some point that was at Sundance uh, is really not good. And so at least we get one good depiction of Gloria Steinem in, the, in that era. <laughs> I texted this detail to Katie immediately, but uh, Rose Byrne told me she'll be on our our next episode of the podcast. But she told me that. Her Gloria Stein wig was made by Glenn Close's reclusive wig maker. Yeah, love like a reclusive, my... <laughs> reclusive wig maker. I love it. Like she worked with Glenn Close on damages and she's like, get me Glenn's wig person. Um, I demand it. So I was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic wig. I got to say it's perfect. So, yeah. Well, Joanna, speaking of your um, still-watching compatriots, um, we're going to hear you catching up with Anthony Brezican right now to talk about the exclusive photos of Dune that uh, were published uh, on VF.com this week. They'll be in the magazine as well. Um, I really without revealing too much the uh, amount of traffic that these photos are getting to me is really encouraging just showing that not not only people into dune but they want some like big ass sci-fi spectacle in their lives um it made i don't know anything about dune and it's made me excited yeah i mean uh, speaking of incredible casts i mean this cast is nuts timothy chalamet oscar isaac zendaya jason momoa dave bautista rebecca ferguson like i feel like every time um Denis Villeneuve announced like a new cast member. We were like, surely not. Surely there's no more room on this cast for another <laughs> Too favorite. Too many beautiful people. <laughs> I'm uh, just glad that um, Charlotte Rampling and Timmy Chalamet are finally in a movie together. <laughs> at long last. At long last. So, uh, so yeah. So let's hear from Anthony about sort of some of the conversations he had uh, with Denis and, and with, um, do you like how I just called him by his first name like we're friends? Danny. And, uh, <laughs> and with Timmy uh, <laughs> about Dune. <laughs> All right, I am thrilled to be talking to the great Anthony Bresnikin about uh, his great piece in our magazine about uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, two-part adaptation of Dune, uh, right. as discussed in your article. Uh, Anthony Bresnikin, why should people be ex- – people are, obviously. The, these articles are very popular. Why do you think people are so excited about uh, this adaptation of Dune? You know, it's weird because I wasn't sure how people would react. Dune is one of those novels that uh, I think has had a a really profound impact on pop culture storytelling uh, without necessarily being something that people have read themselves. You know what I mean? There's like elements of it that whether the creators acknowledge it or not, like are seen to have influenced Star Wars and Game of Thrones and all kinds of sword and sorcery storytelling and space storytelling and adventuring. And 
Frank Herbert's novel has really defied adaptation. It's a vast story. There are tons of characters. You know, I don't know necessarily that uh, J.K. Rowling was influenced by it, but maybe, uh, and again, maybe through the ether, because if you think of like how many characters there are in the Harry Potter stories, it's a similar thing with Dune. Huge canvas of characters, very complex, like, warfare and skullduggery between these various royal families that exist in Frank Herbert's universe. And I think it was popular in a, in a way that um, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings was popular because it was so immersive and you could really venture into this world. It wasn't just uh, characters from our world go to Mars. It was like, this is another time, another place. Everything is different. A whole unique way of looking at a new world. And so I think there's excitement because people know what it means and know what it influenced, and yet it hasn't successfully been adapted in the past. They have tried. There's there's a Jodorowsky's Dune, uh, which which failed to materialize, but did as as many failed projects create opportunity for a fantastic documentary. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've never watched Jodorowsky's Dune, I, I really uh, recommend you do that. Uh, and then of course there's David Lynch's. This is the only bone I have to pick with your great article uh, that went up uh, today, Tuesday morning, uh, that I'm talking to you is uh, your your lack of respect for David Lynch's. No, I mean like Lynch Lynch himself. <laughs> is like i don't know about that film um but his his attempt to adapt dune with like kyle mclaughlin sean young patrick stewart like it's an incredible cast sting uh in a metallic diaper like it's an incredible cast (laughs) a a visually like stunning sort of uh thing but uh in the end you're right it's never no adaptation has uh, gained the traction that you would think a, a classic like Dune might gain. There's the sci-fi um, miniseries Children of Dune with a young James McAvoy as Alito Atreides, but like it's not sunk in uh, the way. And and one reason, and you get into this uh, in your conversation with the director, uh, is it's so sprawling and and the attempt to capture it in feature film form seems foolhardy. So so what? What conversations do you have around this decision to split the uh, the book adaptation into two parts here? Well, it was really what Denis wanted from the beginning, and I think Warner Brothers had success with um, the 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 halving of Stephen King's It, where you take a part of the book and tell that story, and then if it is successful, you do the second part. And in that case, they had you know the same characters but at two different timelines, and they kind of those were interwoven in the novel. Uh, here it's really more of a of a chronological split between the beginning of the of the novel, the first half of the novel, and the second half. So, if you've read read the book, you can probably estimate about where this movie will wrap up. But I think you know they're going to add some exciting you know finishing touches to it to make it feel like a complete movie. And then there's another half of the story to tell if it's a big success and. I don't know. People seem enthusiastic about it, so maybe it will be. So one thing that is interesting about Dune is that it does have, you know, the the, the women of this universe have a very powerful role to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not just sort of love interests and concubines, though they are concubines uh, in many respects. But, uh, you know, Denis Villeneuve has this great tradition of um, carving out great 
roles for women. Uh, so, so what is he doing with his adaptation to make sure that uh, these these great women that he's cast and Dea, Rebecca Ferguson, et cetera, really have a chance to to shine? Yeah, I had a problem with that word concubine, uh, which is one of the descriptions for Lady Jessica, played by Rebecca Ferguson. You know, they describe her as a warrior priestess, which I thought was, uh, a, that's a pretty badass thing to have on your business card. Um, but she's also the concubine of Duke Leto Atreides, who is played by Oscar Isaac. And when I hear concubine, I think slave. I think of somebody who's like against their will. And in this world, it's really more, it's almost more of like an, a, a political affiliation. There, it's almost like an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. And yet within that uh, arrangement, there is uh, like love and affection that forms, you know, over their shared aspirations, I guess you'd put it. So she's not like, it's not like a harem or something like that. It's more of like, she's this powerful uh, priestess with a movement called the Bene Gesserit, which is kind of like, um, you know, a lot of people think that George Lucas got his idea for the Jedi from Mm-hmm. Frank Herbert's doing they're these powerful women who can make you do things with the power of suggestion uh, they're, they're almost supernatural peacekeepers in a way uh, they don't have laser swords but they, they have sort of this long term wisdom and vision of the universe and they, and they guide it and then she's like a fearsome space mama bear who has to protect this son uh, when everything goes pear-shaped on this desert planet that they've taken control of. This film has taken, uh, you know, the approach to gender swap, uh, one of the characters. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, gender swap and, and I guess race swap uh, is important to note, too, that the character of Dr. Liette Kynes was played in the David Lynch movie by Max von Sydow, uh, has always been depicted as a white man, and the, the character is very important because he, I'll, I'll use he uh, since that's the original version of it, like uh, he is like an ecologist, like the lead ecologist, the Dr. Fauci of uh, <laughs> Arrakis, this desert world, which is the only source of this mystical spice. And the spice, I would draw another, I'm, I'm drawing a lot of different references here from reality and from fiction, but but if you think of uh, of the heart-shaped herb in uh, Black Panther that grows in Wakanda, and like you you consume it and it gives you superhuman powers, like the spice opens your mind. It's you know this book was published in 1965. There were some mind-altering substances making around mm-hmm. back then. It's about like it, it kind of enhances your perception and allows navigation of the galaxy. And I think it's. Um, it gives you certain abilities and powers beyond that of a normal human being. So um, it's very important that this is mined and produced. And Dr. Liet Kynes kind of manages the planet, right? And is non-political. Uh, it, really, he wanted what was best for Arrakis. And as the House Atreides takes over the planet from the Harkonnens, who are these sort of like you know, I would say like rapacious industrialists <laughs> who are here. They would just demolish the world if it meant extracting all the spice. Uh, he's sort of trying to keep the peace between these two warring factions. And they, uh, Denis uh, Villeneuve has changed the character from 
an older white man to a younger black woman who is played by Sharon Duncan Brewster. She had um, an important role as uh, one of the leaders of the rebellion in Rogue One. She joked when we got on the phone, like, yep, I'm having another like <laughs> another go at space, like trying to <laughs> keep some order in space. She's wonderful. And she had probably the best uh, read on Frank Herbert's book and what the story meant and what Liette Kynes means to the story, because that's the protector. Now, I'll switch now to she now that we're talking about uh, Sharon playing the part. You know, she is trying to protect Arrakis the way. Lady Jessica is trying to protect her son. You know, she wants to make sure that the Atreides family, while we know them as the protagonists and as the good guys, she wants to make sure, like, this is a world she cares about and she wants it to be taken care of uh, by the people who preside over the extraction of the spice. And uh, she said, you know, this, is, this isn't this a galaxy far, far away. This is our universe, but thousands of years in the future. And she said, you know, there will be black people in the future and there will be um, there will be women in leadership roles. And who's better at keeping the peace between warring factions than women? And I thought that was a great point to make. And, uh, you know, this is a new adaptation of this story. And I think sometimes with science fiction storytelling in the past, just even if it wasn't necessarily spelled out, the default setting was white person, white man uh, in the imagination. And, uh, uh, Denise said he didn't want that. He wanted uh, his world to be um, more diverse. And so he cast this wonderful actress who, again, uh, like her character, has a great read on everybody else in the story. So I'm looking forward to writing a little more about my interview with Sharon because uh, she was she was spectacular. I just Sometimes you have those interviews you ended up and you just have like a big smile on your face uh, because it was so, so fun to talk to her and, and uh, so fun to explore this world with her. Yeah, I think especially, you know, given the themes that Dune has about sort of imperialists conquering various planets, various societies sort of stuff, I think it's important that this not be an all-white cast on display here because some of the optics of that, um, I, I really liked Denise's vision for, for what this this might become. So, And uh, Zendaya is, is Chani, who has a kind of ethereal presence uh, guiding Paul through a kind of uh, almost a telepathy. There's an interesting mix of science fiction and magic in this world. Very yeah, much, yeah, absolutely. Much like uh, Game of Thrones. And and that's that's something that I've been curious about. Like you know, people coming to the story of Dune. Um, it's a it's such a classic sci-fi novel. But I think you're right that like really only hardcore at this point hardcore sci-fi people really read Dune anymore. And I've yeah. been wondering if maybe because. Frank Herbert was so interested, you know, House Atreides, I think, gets its name from House Atreus, which is, you know, from like the Iliad and stuff like that. And he's he was so interested in these like warring noble families. Uh, and maybe that's something that audiences will be much more receptive to having dined out on Game of Thrones for the last decade, um, that they might be interested in like House Harkonnen versus House Atreides. And it might sort of uh, be a bit more accessible uh, to folks at this point in our culture. Yeah, and if you think of them as just from our own past, um, like royal families feuding, mm -hmm. that you have, you have like the working class, the peasants, the farmers, the you know the blacksmiths, and then you have the rich and powerful families that seem to pit their nations against each other. Um, and you know the the Fremen really are, you know they're they're like they're like the 
the working class or the indigenous natives who um, are caught in the crossfire, but also are interested in just protecting their land and protecting their world and protecting their their family or their tribe or their uh, their group. And uh, it's it's I think a pretty fascinating story. I mean, it's 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 at once both fantastic and it has that allure of fiction, but also grounded in a kind of reality that we know from our own history. Excellent. Well, um, that is I, like our tease of Dune. We're, we're uh, so excited to be able to bring it to folks. Um, hopefully you've all checked out Anthony's uh, article at this point, but if you haven't, uh, head over to vf.com and you will find it there. Um, and Anthony, thank you so much for uh, taking us on this little tour of the, of the Dunes. It's my pleasure. It's such a vast world. There's, I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but it's fun to talk about it in a little more depth now. So thanks, Joe. The Run Through Evoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Turner Classic Movies presents Decoding John Ford, the all-new season of The Plot Thickens. This season on The Plot Thickens, we explore the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You will hear from the best of them, John Wayne, James Stewart, Catherine Hepburn, even Ricardo Montalbán. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. Don't miss Decoding John Ford, the new season of The Plot Thickens, with new episodes available every week, available wherever you get podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Okay, so this week's Essentials Rewatch is Casablanca. It's something that we put in the poll and kind of thought it might be a ringer from the beginning because it's one of those classics that everyone uh, feels like they should have seen or has seen and wants to rewatch. And for me, I was kind of like, are we really going to want to watch a 40s movie after so many 50s movies? It's still black and white. It feels like we're maybe like going back in the same well. Um, And I hadn't seen it since college, probably, although I remembered it pretty well, I would say. Um, And I just, I loved rewatching this movie so much. It felt like, not not timely exactly because it's such a World War II movie, but like kind of more of a balm even than Singing in the Rain. Um, did you guys get as much out of revisiting Casablanca as I did? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but made I, you want to go re- fight some Nazis, Mike? I yeah, and and uh, and it did seem kind of relevant, frankly, to uh, our our time. You know, the story of an American who's sort of trying his best to not be drawn into a conflict and not kind of have to make a moral stand and pretend that things are normal and pretend that he can, you know, only think about his own kind of narrow interests. And and the situation just gets worse and worse until he finally is is forced to, you know, become a moral actor. And I, I see, I've seen it, I definitely have seen it at least once in the past year. And I think this is probably maybe the, I don't know, seventh or eighth time I've seen it, but it is just like... It's really an incredible film every time. And it's funny that you, you think about the director and think, what else did he direct? Like, White Christmas, you know? Like, he directed <laughs> about 180 movies or something. And, you know, I, I don't know that anyone expected Casablanca to become what it is. Um, but it just happens to be a perfect film. Uh, and and just, you know, stands up 110%. It's, a, it, it's not one of these films where you watch it and go, oh, isn't it sort of weird how like they used to make movies? It's just, I, I, I don't know if you guys agree, but that's my feeling. I just want to be clear that Mike was not exaggerating. Michael Curtiz has 178 IMDb directing <laughs> credits, um, including a bunch of silent films from his, um, uh, like, uh, more European uh, name that I can't pronounce properly. He was born in uh, Hungary. Um, anyway, this guy had quite a career. Uh, yeah, no, I, I love this film. Um, the like sort of romantic flashback stuff doesn't all, like Bogey doesn't always work well for me as a romantic lead, but the like uh, intrigue, tension, and everything that Claude Rains does from beginning to end works so well for me. I love Claude Rains in this movie. And I, I just, yeah, I love revisiting it. Absolutely. Did it bum anyone else out that Rick is 37? <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> I, look, I think Bogart was like, I think Bogart was like 43 when it was made. Yeah, he was early 40s when it, when it came out. But um, yeah, it was just so funny to, to watch a movie that, you know, I think I, my dad showed this to me when I was probably 10 or something. Um, and he just seemed like, he might as well have been a thousand years old, you know, and then <laughs> watching it and be like, oh man, <laughs> we're going to be the same age in a couple of months. Like, you know, um, where's your no, bar it, in a, in a front in a war? Hey, as, as someone who just turned 45, I mean, you know, give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should just put on a fez and be one of those like older Moroccan. <laughs> but but, how, I, but the, like how old was Bogey when he died? I mean, was he like in his fifties? I think he yeah. died relatively I mean, young, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, my favorite story about Bogart was when they filmed The African Queen and everyone got sick um, from drinking the water except for the director. Uh, John Ford was the director, right? And, and Bogart, because neither of them drank any water, they only drank whiskey. Um, so he was, a, he was an old 43. A hard living man. A hard John living Hust- man. John Huston, the other hard John Huston, living John sorry. director from the uh, Thank you, John Huston. Uh, but Bogart also seems like he looked like he was 45 when he was 22. Like, I, I don't know that I've seen any of his super young movies um, because he became a really big deal later in his life. But he does have that, like, face that just feels kind of like Mount Rushmore no matter what. Yeah. Elegantly craggy, I think. Yeah. You know, and I think it really works for this story that he's not, you know, matinee idol good looking. You know, he's not Clark Gable or whatever. He's um, but he, he's, you know, he's seen some life, um, which I think is sort of essential to the story. I mean, obviously, Ingrid Bergman is this like radiant you know, <laughs> being who has also seen some life and yet is not wearing it on her face. But um, but yeah, I just forgot, you know, uh, watching this movie as a grown up, like 
all of the sort of human subtleties of it, you know, that these mm-hmm. people are not these kind of totems of archetypal characters. They're, they're nuanced. They have sort of, you know, a, a roundness to them that I think I just not picked up on when I was a kid watching it. So it was really, you know, watching this and Singing in the Rain and Sunset Boulevard, you know, I think that for a lot of people, including myself sometimes, these older movies can stand in my memory as these sort of starchy, one-dimensional sort of, you know, very presentational acting kind of things. And in truth, there's so much detail and texture going on in them. So it's really nice to be able to revisit that. Well, I had that feeling about um, Here's Looking at You, Kid, which... I think by the time I saw the movie, there was that sort of corny song where, where the refrain is here is looking at you, kid. And it just did feel like a thing that was kind of handed down from Mount Olympus and who wanted it in the first place um, as a phrase. But when you watch the film, you see that it is a it's an example of why this guy is cool. He's weird and cool and he can say something that doesn't really mean anything and he makes it cool. And he says it three <laughs> different times. Um, and, and I don't know why, for some reason that, that sprung to life. That, that has been my experience too, watching all these movies where they kind of are coming to life in a way that they hadn't before. They felt previously like, you know, homework or like a thing, an, an assignment that was passed down. Um, and, and, and this time for some reason, maybe it's this weird situation where watching everything in and everything's a little bit raw i don't i don't know um but anyway yeah that's what's that's what's fun about bogart i think is he's not i mean obviously you can you can tell that a male audience is relating to him and doesn't feel threatened by him uh except that they could never ever be as cool as him but if he can be that cool then maybe they could too you know Um, (laughs) which is fun I feel like by the time I watched Casablanca, I had seen like Bugs Bunny do all those lines. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Hill of Beans and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was already sort of in the in the groundwater of the culture by the time I finally watched it. And it is weird when those famous lines hit or in the case of Casablanca, the fact that there is like the most famous quoted line of Casablanca isn't actually in Casablanca. Played Again Sam is not in there. You know, and so it's just like that's how iconic this film is that it has its own like um mistaken myths around it so yeah um i was thinking what what you were saying richard about all the like human moments in it and the fact that like so much of the movie basically takes place in one location which is partly because they didn't film on location they filmed it in burbank and it was a cheap movie so they had this one set that they used a ton but it gives you the chance to feel the texture of ricks as this whole place where you've got like the bartender and yvonne the girlfriend um like that scene is so amazing uh, especially because you get to see victor laszlo as like he he is such a hero like you really get to look up to him even though he's the other guy in this love triangle that you're supposed to not be rooting for um, but the way that the girlfriend like stands up and has tears in her eyes and like shouts Viva la France when she could be such like an easy floozy character to write off. Um, there's just so much attention to all the people populating this world, like maybe because they didn't have a lot. They couldn't put that many more people in the scene. So they had to make them all real characters. Um, it's funny because like I always think of Victor Laszlo as, as kind of a drip. I don't know. Oh, I mean, like, no. and he's when, so and, handsome and noble. <laughs> well, when he when he does that, that scene is so great. It's such a good scene, the dueling song scene. But like, um, it's such a reckless thing for him to do, and it gets you know he puts both him and Ilsa in so much uh, danger by doing it. I don't know. Am I am I a square? What I have? What I have? Uh, but I, no. I think the movie. I think the movie wants to play that trick on you, I guess, right? I think the movie wants you to say, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the bad guy, here's the romantic rival, and then for you to have to change your mind and say, oh, wait, this guy is the hero, and the guy I've been rooting for is actually being a dick, you know? And you have to do the change that Rick does, because Rick has to do the same thing. Exactly. 
And I think that's what's so, like, that's the movie's working on a lot of different levels. And you think about all the, like, you know, I, the various, like, comedies of the 30s where you had the Ralph Bellamy type, like, they have, you know, the guy who was, like, obviously the patsy in the relationship. And he, you know, Paul Henry does such a big contrast to that, like, just kind of as this noble, like, maybe a little square. Like, Rick would probably be more fun, but he'd also be more of a pain in the ass. Right. By the way, you mentioned the uh, setting, Katie, and I've actually been to the fake Rick's Cafe oh. in Casablanca. <laughs> Is it still standing? It's they they it's like a oh, oh sorry trap. no no I was thinking you went to the one in Burbank you went to an actual in in actual Casablanca in actual Casablanca <laughs> Morocco they have like a tourist trap restaurant that is <laughs> um, you know supposed to be Rick's um, but what's really funny is um, I don't even think that the sh- the movie's supposed to be set in Casablanca they just changed it to Casablanca because the name sounded better uh, in the title. And it's really supposed to be um, Tunis or some or someplace else. So it is funny how kind of um, fictional the whole world is, and yet how real it feels when you're when you're watching it. It's like it is uh, movie magic. Yeah, the production design is so good, and and you know, for a movie made during wartime, like it just has a richness to it that I think was a real feat of kind of, you know, creative ingenuity. Um, and I just love how much actually how, how kind of a single set movie it is for the most part. And it really amps up that feeling of, of these, all these people, not just the main characters, but everyone there being in this sort of purgatory, you know, and some ascending and some descending and, and just that weird liminal space that many, many people live during times of kind of global crisis. Like they're not, well, I mean, Laszlo is to some extent, but like most of them are not on the front lines of anything. They're not their their allegiances are shifty, but they're all caught up in it, sort of waiting to see where the war takes them. And I think that energy is like so. I mean, we're dealing with a very different kind of thing right now, but it still felt very palpably relatable in a way to sort of that that feeling of being stuck and mm-hmm. and 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 having a the dimmest of dangerous hopes that you might get out of it somehow, but probably won't be, and probably be sucked under by the thing. I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting movie to watch um, right now for that particular kind of claustrophobic energy almost. Yeah. I thought a lot about watching it, the fact that, you know, of when it was made. Like, it's it's set in December 1941, I guess, so that America isn't in the war yet. I don't think it ever explicitly mentions it one way or another, but it makes sense for Rick to be neutral in that way, you know, when America was mm-hmm. trying to pretend to be neutral. Um, but it's made in the middle of the war. It opens at the end of 1942. Just the fact that, like, they have the reference in concentration camps, like, at a time when, like, most Americans didn't really know what was going on in concentration camps. And they're turning, you know, they're Nazis or the villains, but they didn't know they were going to win the war yet. Like, the amount of just, like... It's not like an optimistic movie, but the idea of making this in the middle of uh, this conflict that to us has always come down as this predetermined thing where the good guys triumph over the bad guys and how uncertain everything was back then, um, it makes it even more moving, I think. Well, I watched one of those um, YouTube videos where they massively deconstruct, you know, classic movies. And, And what they were saying is that it was symbolizing the most recent big thing, which was the U.S. deciding to get back into the war. Which was, you know, obviously until Pearl Harbor, uh, FDR wanted to do and not a whole lot of other people did want to do. And so it was it, it was sort of, you know, for a wartime audience to basically see that they had made the right decision by getting into the war and to symbolize this this, you know, experience that everyone had just gone through thinking, well, this isn't our conflict. Like, what the hell do we have to do with this to go from there to saying, OK, in a principled way, like, let's go in and and be on the right side of history. So I, I think it is very much a wartime movie and it's interesting to, to think about in that context. 
Yeah, I, it remind, that, that kind of reminds me of a movie that came out a couple years ago, a lone Scherfig film called Their Finest, um, mm. which is about a bunch of British filmmakers essentially making propaganda movies that are meant to get the Americans to kind of further enthusiasm for joining the war. Uh, but like, you know, like Mrs. Miniver had done that, I guess. And so they're making another movie to kind of, you know, continue with that. And just thinking about people making movies in such a reactionary way, you know, like, I don't mean reactionary in like the kind of bad way, but just like, you know, like we got to, we got to respond to this current thing right now. I just think there's something so interesting that out of that kind of quick tossed off almost sort of thing comes to this sort of masterpiece, you know, um, mm-hmm. It gives me it gives me hope about whatever art is able to be created right now. Well, I was I was noodling around some like Oscar trivia or Oscar history around Casablanca because I realized I didn't know much about it because we think about, you know, Casablanca, when you look at the list of best picture winners of all time, right? Like Casablanca is is sort of like we're like, yeah, that's a that's a classic film. It's one of the greatest films of all time. And of course it won best picture. But what I thought was interesting is in a few of the articles I was reading, they referenced Casablanca as a dark horse. So I was sort of like, okay, well, was it not that popular? What was going on around it? And uh, so I was sort of trying trying to poke around and find out what was happening. And what's interesting is that this is the last year, um, the year that Casablanca was nominated is the last year that 10 films were nominated for Best Picture until whatever, 2008, 2009. Um, And four of them were war movies. So like this, you know, and I was just thinking about this Mm. whole whole, like conversation we have about like, oh, the Oscars are so political now or whatever. I'm like, oh, weren't they always political? I mean, like four (laughs) war movies, like, come on. Um, And the fact that, you know, Casablanca, it was was popular enough. It made a decent amount of money, but uh, it was up against For Whom the Bell Tolls and The Song of Bernadette. And both of those films made way more money, were way more popular. And both of them sort of like swept the Globes and, you know, won the acting Oscars and stuff like that. And so I think that those two movies might have split the vote and got Casablanca in there. It's possible. So, um, I mean, that's it's just like we think of this as this must have been the top movie of the year, the most popular movie of 1943. But it's not that's not quite, I guess, what happened. Two fun Oscar facts I learned from Wikipedia reading about this is that um, this is the first year that supporting actor and actress Oscars were full size. They had yes. been small sized plaques before that. They were so... the littler gold men. Yeah. <laughs> it's like such an unnecessary diss. I know. Um, and that it was the last year uh, of 10 nominees until 2009 when they um, when they expanded the category again. So um, I thought that was just a fascinating weird footnote. Yeah, and Casablanca is kind of road from kind of unremarkable just and yet another studio film with big stars kind of churned out um to to this kind of classic is reflected in also singing in the rain you know where it's just so Mm -hmm. interesting to think about that movies that we consider right now to be just whatever might in 60 years 50 years 40 years however long be hailed as masterpieces and i'm really curious what those movies are going to be you know like is everyone going to be you know rallying around you know i don't know fucking green book or something like um but crash um, i think it'll be crash oh Trolls crash, world tour having um, rewatched an hour of crash literally yesterday for the other podcast that i do it crash is not ready for a revisit don't don't go down that road <laughs> it's not time the fact that bogart and uh bergman both lost is pretty wild too uh, I, I i have not seen paul lucas in watch on the rhine and yeah. i have not i've also not seen the song of bernadette with jennifer jones but um but man I, they Jennifer must be Jones great. Is, 
Yeah, Jennifer Jones is so interesting because she's like such a one note actress and she does it in Song of Burnett really well, but then she just keeps doing it. And you're like, oh, that's the one thing you do. Um, the <laughs> Ingrid Bergman wasn't even nominated for Casablanca. She was nominated for a different film, which is insane. Yeah, crazy. Oh, right. Um, I mean, oh, look at that. Yeah. Yes. If you want to like criticize Casablanca for being dated in any way, I think the Ilsa character is maybe the weak link in the entire story because she's so there as like, I don't know what to do. I'm torn between these two men. She doesn't really she hasn't really taken action for herself. She's following Victor Laszlo and then she like she literally tells Rick, like, make a decision for me. And Ingrid Bergman is wonderful and she she turns Ilsa into this person who you can imagine like these two men like giving everything up for and you kind of feel her anguish there. But it does you watch that and you think about like that performance versus you know, a, you know, Greer Garson in Madame Curie as Marie Curie. Like you can see how she didn't have as much to work with as maybe some of those other nominees. Well, it is like a male fantasy of um, fixing everything. Right. Yeah. Even, <laughs> yeah. even sort of self-sacrificially. That is the kind of that's like the, the, the actual truly ultimately scary thing for a man is like not being in control. You know, so so even if you have to sort of like smash your own dreams uh, in order to arrange everything like that, I think that is sort of gratifying at some weird level. Yeah, I mean, that archetype of Rick's character of the kind of, you know, suave, but kind of semi amoral, but, ha you know, the arc of the movie is his kind of emerging, you know, moral compass or whatever. I mean, it's very funny that you can draw a straight line between Casablanca and Tony Stark in the Marvel movies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. well, I, I was going to stop yeah. at a Han Solo on the way there, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the most likely cantina is Rick's, right? Yeah. I mean, they've, always, exactly. they've always kind of said that, right? Yeah. We, um... We we talk about sort of like opportunistic or or let's see let's say canny uh, Oscar campaigns. The release of Casablanca wasn't necessarily an Oscar campaign, but I don't think anything beats kind of its rollout. The fact that okay, so it was supposed to premiere in 1943, but they moved the premiere up to November 1942 to capitalize on the fact that that is when the U.S. invaded, uh, like recaptured Casablanca for the Allies. So they like premiered the film. They rushed to premiere the film in the same month that Casablanca is like recaptured by the Allies in 1942, and then they released it in January uh, 1943 when Churchill and FDR gave a like joint presser or whatever uh, held a, a summit in Casablanca, and so it's like world events could not have been sort of like propping this film up more. Uh, uh, you know, if it tried. So Wow, I didn't know Harvey Weinstein was alive back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. No, I'm just <laughs> We're joking about the other things known about Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I had forgotten that I, I remembered Peter Lorre being in this movie and I, I had seen enough like old films to kind of be familiar with Peter Lorre's whole thing. I had forgot that he was only in one scene um, and he's amazing in his scene because everyone in this movie is amazing. But when he, you know, he dies pivotally like early on in the movie and I just I was amazed by how much of an impact he makes for it's um, like Drew know. Barrymore from Scream. <laughs> <laughs> he was the it's Drew like... Barrymore of his time. I think that's what they called him. Well, it's it's uh, I think it's interesting how many, uh, you know, European players they are there are in the film and that is like one of the fun facts that floats around the internet about this movie is that like in the Marseille scene which is like such a strong scene many people in that room like were actually crying because they were you know, uh, you know, had fled Europe, had fled the Nazi occupation of Europe and were feeling emotional about it and, and I think that that's under, that comes through that yeah, raw emotion yeah. comes through in that scene yeah 
I think I, I tweeted this or said it somewhere. Like Casablanca is like one of those classics that is worthy of the rewatch. And it's also pretty short. Like it's not a much of a commitment to get people to come in and like watch it. It's basically an hour and a half long. Um, so it's so it's so easy to kind of sit someone down and be like, no, this one, watch it. And most people <laughs> will thank you for it, I think. So who should do the remake? Damien Chazelle? <laughs> That's I think the it's thing is be like a, a Tony Stark spinoff, actually. <laughs> yeah. There was um there I, I was reading this like indie wire piece uh that they did around the 70th anniversary or whatever. So just a couple years ago. Uh and apparently Warner Brothers was kicking around the an idea, a script that they had that was about Rick and Elsa, the illegitimate son of Rick and Elsa Ilsa, like coming to Casablanca himself. And I was like, it's no. the worst idea I've ever heard. No. no. So, uh, and I guess there are two, there were two TV prequels that were made of Casablanca, but it was never, and apparently they announced a sequel to Casablanca where Rick would like fall in love with another dame who was like a Red Cross nurse or something like that. Uh, So I'm glad none of those projects have ever really like... I would watch like a 10-part HBO limited series just set at Rick's, like all before this movie takes place of so just like whatever other scheming happens like on the gambling table. Yeah, like an anthology series yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. do like the roulette wheel, do the bartender. Like that's that's my pitch. Someone someone let me make that. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Okay, so Nicole Byard, thank you for joining us. And um, I'm excited that you've brought an entire season of Nailed It for all of us in our quarantines. I, I don't know if the excellence of that timing has occurred to you yet. Oh, I mean, nobody ever tells me when they get released. <laughs> but uh, I do think it's, it's a very good time for it to have been released. Well, and you were on the road touring um, doing stand-up, I, I think, until like really recently, right? Yeah, I was doing stand-up, I think, until the weekend before they were like, everybody stay inside. Wow. And it traveling was kind of weird because nobody was acting like it was a big deal. Like, I, even without a pandemic, I wiped down the seats with, like, a Clorox wipe or whatever. Uh-huh. And then I usually, like, if I sleep on a plane, I put something over my face. Uh, in case, like, I cough in my sleep or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> people are looking at me weird. Um, and then during my meet and greets, I was like, please, nobody touch me. Um, and there weren't, like, the last week I was in was Texas. And there were, like, no confirmed cases where I was. But I was like, I don't know these people. Yeah. I don't know where they've been. Please don't touch me. Some people had a problem with it. I was like, I'm not accepting gifts. I'm so sorry. Yeah, some people were bad. Some people were like, but I want to hug you. And I'm like, and I don't want to die. (laughs) 
it seems like maybe for for people like you who are meeting fans often and in public spaces, like maybe it, after when this is all over, it'll get a little bit easier. Like you'd be like, oh, I just don't shake hands. It's uh, everyone will kind of be used to it by then. You can get a little bit more personal space back. I really fucking hope so. <laughs> I I love people. I love when people come to my shows, but like the level of intimacy that sometimes people display is a little overwhelming. Like a hug where they rub your like lower back. You're like, I don't know you. Please don't. <laughs> and then you don't want to embarrass anybody. So you don't say anything. You just go home and you're like, oh, I feel dirty. <laughs> I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent. So technically we're talking about nailed it. But I'm thinking about you having a podcast. You know, I'm on, we're on a podcast now. Um, there is this thing where you have a podcast and you're in people's ears and they feel like they know you in this way. Yeah. Um, way different than even being on television, I think. Yeah, because you're doing intimate things while you're listening. You're like driving to work, so I'm with you going to work every day. Or yeah. you're doing your laundry, or you're washing dishes, or you're like cooking dinner for your partner. So it is it is a different level of intimacy. It's a, it's a little, I get it. I fully get it. Do you feel like you can tell if you meet somebody, like maybe not at a show or something, if they know you from your stand-up or from Nailed It? Like, is there a, a difference in the way people approach you? Only if they're like a very big fan because <laughs> they'll stare at me for a very long time. And then that makes me feel crazy <laughs> because one of my biggest fears is like saying to someone, it's like, oh, would you like a picture or something? They're like, no, you have something on your fucking face. <laughs> You're like, oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I assumed you know who I am. Um, but that's like the only difference. But like if I go on dates or something or meet somebody new, if they're pretty chill, they usually mention it like, not like up top, but like in a conversation, they'll be like, oh yeah, uh, I know you from X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. Also, it's LA, so you know, a lot of people work in LA, so it's not like I'm special. Everybody knows somebody from somewhere eventually in LA. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I want to go back to the beginning of Nailed It, because I know you've talked a little bit before about how the producers of the show kind of brought the idea to you. So I'm curious if that was, if there was an audition process, if they kind of got feedback from you on what the show would be like, because it does seem like the show was built around you in a way that, like, not every uh, reality competition show is. Yeah, I got really, really, really lucky. So Magical Elves brought the idea to me, and they were like, we're a fan of your comedy, we don't really know what the show is, but we know that you, uh, they were, they were really worried about like the host walking, like towing the line between being insulting, but like calling out the reality of the situation. Yeah. And I was like, well, being mean's like not my jam. I do not like being mean to people, but I think I can figure out a way to be funny, but also be like, what you made is pretty wild. Right. <laughs> and then like hope that they can laugh at themselves. Yeah. Uh, but, like, we shoot for, I think it's, like, 10 hours per episode. So, like, they could cut, like, eight different shows based on what we shoot. Yeah. So, I think a lot of times what happened is, like, we're watching people bake for two hours. It is very hard to stay engaged watching someone bake for two hours. <laughs> so, like, you know, like, all the tangents and stuff you see, none of that's pre-planned. It's, you get bored. <laughs> and then you, like... Start doing. You go try to get food, or you try to make shock laugh, or you teach them a joke or something. So I think it's like it seems like it's built around me because we spend so much time shooting, and I'm I have ADD, so like my mind will wander. <laughs> but they built that in from the beginning. They're like, okay, we want you to improvise. We want you to wander. Like you, you give it a shot, and we'll see how what works in the actual final cut. I mean, nobody told me. So <laughs> <laughs> we 
we had this rehearsal the day before we started shooting and I met Wes and I met like the camera operators and the producers and stuff. And they were like, okay, here are your marks. And I was like, okay. But then like, what else happened? And they were like, you know, we'll see. And then the day we started shooting, I would, I would constantly, cause I wear an earpiece and they'd be like, do that again. I'd be like, but like, is there a direction? And they're like, just do it again. So like nobody really gave me direction. So I just started doing weird shit that made me giggle. Yeah. And that's what would make it in. <laughs> I was watching this first season episode because I was kind of curious about how the show has grown since it's been a hit. And um, it's the episode where we have uh, Jay Chandrasekhar and he just kind of like, he had to like go pick up his kids in the middle of taping or something. And it like, it's in the show where you guys are just waiting for him to come back. And you say something like, mm-hmm. this is a nailed it version of a TV show or something like that. <laughs> And does it feel like, because it, it looks to me like the show has gotten more polished. Like, I think you guys have this great rapport. Like, has it has it grown from your end in what you guys are doing um, since the beginning of the first season? I would say, like, Jacques has become more sophisticated to a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, he is better off the cuff. But, like, that really comes with practice. And he's a very witty person. Um, but he's just getting his jokes out faster. I know what the producers are like kind of looking for so it's like this this is this is how i'll say this mm-hmm. um and i would say the contestants are more familiar with the show so they are a little better but they're still like looney tunes like every <laughs> contestant on the show is truly one of the wildest people i've ever met but they're so kind they're so funny they're so nice they're truly so strange but you guys also like the beginning of the four season i think it's um you guys are doing like a fake lifestyles of the rich and famous thing and then there's like a 90s parody like there's a lot of production stuff where you guys like it, it again it feels like it's taking a cue from you and your humor to to get big like that yeah i guess so it's been fun to have um themed episodes yeah i think it's really fun to play in like a world where you're like "Ooh, we're gonna do jungle shit today <laughs> or Ooh, we're gonna do all 90s puns that's yeah. fun it like gives you something different <laughs> to work with other than like you know yeah. b- bad cakes and bad cakes and bad cakes mm-hmm. um i want to ask about what you wear on the show which i know that like not everyone has full control over but it does feel like you get to dress better than like generic reality show hosts like so often it's just like a guy in a suit um and i wonder if that's something that you've gotten to do more of as the show has gone on or if it's something that you kind of like made clear in the beginning that like you were going to make sure you looked as fantastic as possible every time the costume lady or wardrobe her name is brie and brie she shops everywhere. So like she shops like online, she shops in person and then she'll like bring me a rack of stuff and I get to choose what I like and don't like. Mm-hmm. Like anything I don't like, we don't show to the producers because if you show a producer something you hate, that's what you're going to wear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like we just take a lot of photos and we mix and match a lot of things and then she'll buy like maybe a white t-shirt and then she'll dye it. Like I wear this uh, sample size t-shirt, which yeah. is tongue in cheek. Uh, but that was from, Oh dang. It's this like oh, 11 honoree um, designer's name. The 11 honoree has like uh, designer stuff and plus size, mm-hmm. but she took this white shirt and then she like dyed it. She was like, what color do you want it? Pink, purple, blue. And I was like, purple. So like, <laughs> yeah, she'll, gorgeous do stuff for me she's great i love free 
do you like aim being like, okay, last episode I had this look going on. Like I want to change it up. Are you trying to like do as wide a variety of things as you can? Because that's part of the fun for me is like honestly seeing what you're going to wear every every episode. It, yeah, I guess if I'm wearing like green, I like don't want to wear green again. Yeah. And then we have like four wigs. So then we just try to like match the wig with the, the outfit and then the makeup goes from there. It is fun. I do have like a very big say in what I get to wear, which is really cool. Yeah, because you've done acting jobs before, but like then you're dressing for a character and like if you're doing stand up, you're kind of as yourself. But like this feels like it's kind of like in between the two where you like get to like dress crazy, but you have a lot of control over it. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's fun. Because, yeah, like, when I do stand-up, I usually wear, like, jeans and, like, a simple t-shirt. Because I'm like, I don't want you to be looking at my outfit. I want you to be listening to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then acting-wise, very rarely do you get to, like, pick out your own stuff. Like, yeah, you'll tell them what you like. And, that like, <laughs> I did one job where I was like, I don't like anything flowy. And then everything was flowy. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Although you had, I don't remember which season this was, like, like, this great, like, super big print caftan in some episode that was super flowy and looked fantastic. So, at least it, it inspired me. It was like a wrap dress. I think yeah, it looked like some big 60s McCarthy wrap dress. Oh, there we go. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have to look that up for myself at some point soon. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about your time in quarantine. And again, like things are changing all the time, but I think you said in your podcast that you are, you're with your roommate and his boyfriend kind of writing things out. Mm-hmm. How's that going? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so far, so good because I, if I'm like recording a podcast, I'm in the living room. His boyfriend's in the guest bedroom. Uh, he's an editor, so he's editing staff all day. And then my roommate, John, will, like, be in his room doing stuff. So, like, there's, like, we have a little a little bit of space so we're not on top of each other. So yeah. it's great. Yeah. Are you using the time to, like, get future work done? Because, like, as a writer like or stand-ups, you can, like, prepare things. But I feel like also people don't have enough, like, mental energy to do anything but read the news. It is kind of hard to, like, do anything. Because it's, like, when I write stand-up, it's usually based on like an experience like I I do like joke jokes but I also tell stories with jokes in the stories and it's kind of hard to tell a story when you can't leave your house yeah yep so I like I've written truly one joke since quarantine has started and <laughs> but is it a really and good I, one it's like no, it's a terrible one. It's truly a first draft, but it's an easy joke that anyone could, like, have. Yeah, And I'm sure when we all start going back out, everyone will have this joke. But, yeah, it's just been, it's been hard to find inspiration. So it's hard to get out of bed, to be like, I'm going to get out of bed and go to the living room. Yeah, all right. yeah. changing rooms is the, the most we can look forward to. I mean, you, yep. you were saying that everyone's going to have the same quarantine jokes. Like, is... Like, are we going to get good comedy out of this? Or is it just going to be everyone, Ooh. like, is saying, like, thank God we can, you know, somehow re- rebuild society? I guess that's kind of a dark question. I don't know. I just, I wonder what live entertainment is going to be like in, like, you know, eight, nine months. I know. Will people want to go to theaters? Will they want to go to clubs? Like, would people still go to Coachella? Like, I don't know. It's It's scary. Right now, do you look forward to it? Like, you know, in in theory, someday you get to go play at a club again. Like, I think you still have tour dates on your website that hopefully can happen. Like, do you, are you excited about getting back to that or do you have the nervousness too? 
Um, I don't have the nervousness because I'm just like, because nobody really gets in my face or whatever. Yeah. But it's just like, oh, we all use the same mic. So I have to like go out and buy a mic <laughs> that I carry around <laughs> with me. Like, oh, how weird will this get? I know. I mean, I it was touring a lot and I like kind of wanted a break, but like this is not the break I was talking about. <laughs> um but I am excited, but also you're going to go to like the worst stand-up shows. Everyone's going to be so fucking rusty. Cause oh, yeah. like you have to practice. And I mean, I haven't done stand-up in like almost a month. I know what my hour is, but it's like the timing is probably very off. Have you tried doing anything over zoom? Like just for like friends or doing anything that would let you practice? No. I mean, it's only because it's different. Like, I feed off the, the the energy of the crowd, you know? If there's no laugh, I talk faster so I can get off stage faster. Mm-hmm. If you're laughing like me, then I, like, sit and I really enjoy it. So it's like, if I do it for nobody, like, oh, what's the point? <laughs> that was actually a nailed-it question I had, again, about, like, the ability to read a room and, and feed off people. I, I imagine that's a really essential element for, like you were saying in the beginning, about, like, knowing the tone of the show and knowing how to interact with people. Like, is that is that a skill you got from stand-up? Yeah. Stand-up and improv. Yeah. Like, you, like, just live performance where you're, like, doing your own material or making shit up. You kind of have to read the room. Or you just like power through it. You're like, I don't care, but I like to. I like to have an audience that enjoys it. Yeah, and you have to have contestants who are able to laugh at themselves. Otherwise, the whole premise of the show falls apart. So you've got to like, yeah. That if that you take yourself, alert. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't take myself too seriously. I'm, I'm, I'm also a Looney Tune. <laughs> Is there anything from this upcoming season, like uh, one, like one of the episodes that stands out for you that um, that people should look forward to seeing? Um, in the jungle episode, there's this man named Larry. They didn't keep in as much. Like, I love, he made this lemur cake that I loved so much. I talked about how much I loved it, but they only show me laughing at it. (laughs) And I was like, I wish you had left in me. Like, I like (laughs) waxed on poetically about this man's cake for (laughs) such a long time because I loved it so much. It was the wildest thing I've ever seen. And then he had this adorable grin. I, uh, it, <laughs> it, made me, it made me laugh so much. <laughs> so we need to just imagine that happening uh, in between cuts as you yes. waxing poetically about the lemur cake. Um, would you yes. have, so, oh, I love so obviously everything's on hold. So is there anything else that you want to like promote or tell people to seek out in addition to Nailed It while we're all at home? Um, I was just on an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I, I saw it. it. I loved episodes. it. And then, what else? I was on Lego Masters. I, I did an episode of that. Um, just my podcasts, I guess. These are all things that people are just, like, wildly consuming right now. So this is all very helpful. I know. Um, Why Won't You Date Me uh, is a podcast where I talk about dating and stuff and why I'm single. Best friends with Sashir Zameda. We talk about our best friendship and we answer best friend questions. And the newcomers with Lauren Lapkus for watching Star Wars for the first time. Uh, neither one of us has seen it. It's bad. Um, and then 90 Day Bay, where I talk about 90 Day Fiance with my friend uh, Marcy Jarrow. That's on Patreon. And then Drag Her, where we talk about RuPaul's Drag Race with my friend Mono Agapian. 
Since I'm home, I can do all of them. <laughs> I was about to say, it's like you lean in hard to podcast while you can't go to a club and you might have like a whole second industry built by the time this is over. I mean, yeah, that would be, uh, it would be nice if I could like sustain my livelihood, but just podcasting and not leaving my house. <laughs> You're the one who figures it out. And then when society returns to normal, you just never have to leave. You got it. Uh, you got it all set. Mm -hmm. um well thank you for talking to me and thank you for nailed it and then all of the other podcasts as, as someone who knows very little about star wars i feel like i should um i should join up with you guys on that in particular <laughs> you should <laughs> um all right well thanks a lot and um good, good luck in quarantine stay stay strong and indoors okay you too thank you okay bye that does it for this week's episode. Uh, we ran our poll for next week's rewatch early so that uh, we could announce the winner on the show. We're going to try to do it a little differently and maybe help more of you uh, be able to watch along with us. So uh, the winner of this week's poll was My Fair Lady. We'll be jumping up one more decade into the 60s to watch the Best Picture winning musical. Um, I don't know why anyone would reject watching a musical right now. It does seem pretty helpful. I... I don't know when I've seen the entire movie all the way through. I may never have. So um, it'll be fun for me. I'll be singing along um, in my house. Which I hope all and this is the be. movie that's a remake of like She's All That or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, the, um, the Fat Boy <laughs> yeah. Slim dance sequence was unfortunately cut. Right. Um, but you can <laughs> see. <laughs> is She's All That, My Fair Lady, or Pygmalion? Pygmalion, it's all the same thing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, please watch My Fair Lady along with us uh, and join us back next week. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com where you can get a look at those Dune photos and um, read everything else. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen where we will be running the poll for next week's watch, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, and you can follow us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike is at Mike underscore Hogan. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best career path once we run out of film and television to watch goes to Joanna Robinson. Reclusive wig maker? I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.